Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. Our guest today is Ted Chu, PhD, a world-class macroeconomist, futurist, and former chief economist at General Motors and the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority. He is currently a professor of economics at New York University in Abu Dhabi, but for the last 15 years... His second career has been conducting independent research on the philosophical dilemmas raised by today's transhumanist movement and the question of humanity's place in the universe. He is the author of Human Purpose and Transhuman Potential, a cosmic vision for our future evolution recently released by Origin Press. I'm delighted to welcome Ted Chu. Hello, Ted. Hello, Marian. Uh, it's, it's my great pleasure to participate in your radio interview program. Thank you. Thank you. Now, let's start with some definitions. What do you mean by transhumanism and the post-human era? Yes. I look at the humanity from a holistic perspective. So at a low level, we are a biological species. And at the highest level, we are a spiritual species. So I look at the future of humanity of one that is going to be, with the help of advanced technology, we're going to gaining freedom from our biological base. And then at the high end, we're going to be realizing uh, through step-to-step, realizing our highest aspirations and dreams, uh, which is really our human potential for the long term, it really lies. So the transhumanism is really pointing to the direction, not to say that it's going to be the end of humanity, but it's to say that we're going to be advancing, uh, going over the current state of humanity. In your book, you discuss the the whole trajectory of evolution um, up to the present state where you invite us to become consciously evolving. You talk about conscious evolution, um, much as Barbara Marks Hubbard did in her very seminal book. Um, What are the elements that we have to play with in embarking on conscious evolution? Yes, good question. I I just met with... uh... Barbara Max Hubbard uh, last week while I was in a, on a book tour in California. And uh, she lovingly called my book Conscious Evolution 2.0. So since the 1980s, she's been promoting this idea of conscious evolution. I went a step further by pointing out that conscious evolution really is going to have two phases. So far, since the advent of the uh, civilization uh, 6,000 years ago when the agricultural society produced the surplus food and, and allowing people to sit down and reflect our place in the universe, that since the beginning of agricultural revolution, we really started what I call the conscious evolution 1.0. During that phase, uh, what we do is we develop technologies, develop culture, develop philosophy, religion, and all these things. Uh, but there's only one thing that we didn't move, which is human nature. So we developed wonderful civilizations uh, through our conscious efforts. 
Now, I think we're about to enter a second stage of conscious evolution, which is uh, the space of evolution where we can consciously redesign ourselves and helping us to achieve our highest spiritual and material goals. And you talk about the different technologies. In fact, when you were chief economist at uh, General Motors, you uh, had a lot to do with robotics, and that was one of the technologies that you describe in your book, as well as nanotechnology. How would they actually be applied within the human context? Yes. Uh, while I was uh, uh, working at General Motors about uh, 10, 15 years ago, I started to think about uh, the future of the uh, automobile, the future of the car. And uh, so far, since the invention of the automobile 100 years ago, we have made a lot of progress improving the vehicle, including the powertrain, safety, you know, drivability, and so on and so forth. Uh, but there's one thing that we haven't changed, which is that the vehicle needs a person to drive it. So if, if I'm allowed to use this as a parallel to say what's the evolution of the modern automobile and the evolution of humanity, so far the car has been undergoing this conscious evolution 1.0. And for the car, I think that the conscious evolution 2.0 is going to be, we're going to enter a phase where the car it develops the capability to drive itself. And humanity may no longer be have to be driving it. So then, you know, while the car is, is going somewhere that we direct it to go, that we can free ourselves to do uh, uh, read a book or, or uh, talk to someone or uh, uh, even take a nap. Right. So so we will be gaining total freedom from our obligation to having to pay attention on the road and having driving anything. So that is something I call the conscious evolution 2.0 for the for the vehicles, and I think we are getting closer to that dream uh, of the self-driving vehicles. Currently, all the major automakers around the world, plus high-tech companies like Google, are developing uh, so-called the uh, self-driving cars. Now, getting back to humanity, I think so far we have always taken human nature as given. When we are born, we are born into a set of genes. We're born into a set of uh, social circumstances that's beyond our control. It's like you enter a vehicle, you have no choice. You have to drive it. But I think in the future, we will have this freedom from the constraints of human nature that if we can have the ability to manipulate our genetic makeup, or we have ability to artificially produce some other sentient beings, then we're going to enter a new era. So this is what I call the post-human era. I think we're going to be entering the most exciting period in history, probably since the Industrial Revolution in the 1750s. But with that, a lot of people have a lot of concerns, right, because we're going to be entering truly uncharted territory, just like the cars. We're going to enter in in an environment where you will see another car that's driving past you that is not driven by human beings. It's going to be dramatically different. So my book is just trying to really address the issue of the post-human future to say when 
human nature gets changed, then uh, what kind of environment we're going to be in, how do we deal with risks, and how do we address uh, the moral and ethical uh, issues that a lot of people already uh, raised after watching some science fiction movies about uh, robots taking over or super, super intelligence taking over the world. So this is what this book is really about, which is to provide a spiritual high ground for this conscious evolution 2.0. You mentioned the spiritual high ground, uh, but human nature is still directing the the developments. And as you point out in your book, there are uh, fairly well-grounded suspicions of large corporations who might be behind, or even governments who might be behind such developments. Um, how do you uh, reconcile the dangers of exploitation versus the promise of liberation? Yeah, the danger is going to be there. And uh, the book addresses many of the likely dangers going ahead. But before we address specific dangers, I spent a whole entire whole chapter addressing the issue of evolution. I think the concept of evolution is still being mis misunderstood by a lot of people. People think of evolution as a theory that scientifically explains what has happened in the past, right? how, we, how we came into being and how the simple, simpler mechanisms uh, through the mechanism of uh, natural selection or cultural evolution becoming a, a better and more complicated beings. But I think the essence of evolution, the, the, the idea of evolution, is really trying to look into the future. And if you read Darwin's book, The, the Origin of Species, carefully, I think he pointed out that uh, humanity is, is uh, not going to be the pinnacle of evolution. The evolution is not going to end with humanity. So that, that is the uh, first thing I, I, I need to clarify, which is to say, to look into the future, we need to look into the past. And evolution, despite the fact that we're going to be guided, guided by uh, human consciousness, in a lot of aspects, is not going to be, you know, uh, 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 fundamentally different from the evolution in the past. So when you look at the evolution in the past, we recognize through the fossil record and genetic research that over 99% of species that has appeared on the Earth is now extinct. And when you look at the cultural evolution, you also recognize that Numerous uh, organizations, uh, culture, habits, uh, and then ideas have become extinct. Right? So they existed, they emerged, they existed for a while, and then they uh, were extinct now. So I think the future is not going to be that different in that aspect, in the sense that we will, once we are free to find our biological foundation, we're going to try a lot of things and a lot of new sentient beings, whether it's enhanced human beings or sentient robots or so-called cyborgs, are going to emerge. And these things are going to cause danger to, our, to ourselves and also to other new emerging beings. 
But when you look at the evolution of the entire process, then you see that through this selection and emergence of the new, and then elimination of many, many new choice, eventually a, a better being will emerge at the end. So I think at a very high level, this is what we should think about when we're uh, thinking about the risks that the post-human error is going to bring to us. And then at a detailed technical level, then we need to be very, very careful. Right? We need to be we need to be dealing with a lot of risks, uh, with a lot of careful thinking, including the right policies, including the right mechanisms, and including particularly including the protection of individual freedom to carry forward. It's not to say that, oh, well, because just there's evolution, we will allow a lot of new species to die. That's not the idea. The idea is that we should be trying our best to reduce the risk, but not to say because of there is a risk, let's stop and not moving forward. So there is a subtle difference there, which I put a lot of emphasis on because a lot of people, uh, when they're thinking about the future, are very confused about these two two points of difference. Yes, you you do describe uh, in in great detail the period of chaos. Um, that accompanies any such evolutionary leap. Um, Mm -hmm. How optimistic are you that wiser heads will rule, that humanity will win out in the end? Yes, the the reviewer, uh, uh, Michael Zimmerman, who is um, a professor of philosophy at uh, University of Colorado, Boulder uh, pointed out that my book is is also not only about conscious evolution 2.0, but it's also about Nietzsche 2.0. And uh, what what does he mean by that? Is Nietzsche's most famous word is that uh, God is dead. Right? It's uh, the modernity really has bring the human aspirations down. We're no longer connected with the highest spiritual aspirations. We just our goal has been reduced to just dealing with humanity. And in my book, I argue that this is not enough, because exactly as you said, we need to have some faith. We need to have some confidence that through chaos or through uh, cultural evolution, a lot of churning and conscious design of new beings and continue to push forward, I think in the end, we need to have some faith in the natural process, which is the natural laws embedded in this universe. We tend to look at humanity from a negative sense that we believe, uh, for example, we, we tend to believe that human beings are selfish by nature. We have this original sin. We have... Um, all sorts of uh, destructive uh, behavior that we have observed throughout human history. But I also like to point out that uh, what's what's the difference between humanity and other uh, our close biological relatives are not our violent nature, but really our moral nature. That what has evolved is that our selfish motives didn't get enhanced when we become human. However, our moral incentives really get enhanced, 
I mean, we are born with the nature. When we save a children that's falling into a frozen river, we feel happy about it, although we don't gain anything personally from it. So this is one example of our moral, uh, moral nature and moral instinct. And when you look at the evolution, evolutionary uh, history, what you see is that actually the more complicated and advanced uh, 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 certain intellectual beings become, the higher moral instincts they also uh, embody. So if history in the past is going to be extended into the future because natural laws and the benefit of cooperation will continue to play a significant role in the social interactions in the future, that is a phase that is not just a blind, blind phase, but it's a phase with some scientific grounding that the future beings are actually not going to be the beings that is currently depicted in so many science fiction movies of uh, robotic, you know, uh, emotionless uh, super intelligence wiping human beings out. I think those beings actually are not going to be that powerful. The, the powerful beings are the beings that, that will really have a lot of perspective and have a sense how to take advantage of the so-called non-zero logic or the advantage of being cooperation, being in a cooperative mode. That mode is actually more powerful than you doing it in a selfish, single-minded fashion. So to... Uh, uh, to put it shortly, I think the faith is that the universe has actually evolved a lot of morality, and, and that is embedded in, our, in ourselves. And I think the future beings, the future superior beings, is going to have even more moral instincts than we do today. Well, wouldn't you say that that would be dependent on the extent to which we have solved the um, subsistence and supply side of living. Because when uh, we project out the growth of of the pop world's population and uh, global warming and the restriction of uh, arable areas and the food supply and the water supply, um, you know, it could push us back into um, the state of subsistence in which people get pretty atavistic in, in their response to other human beings. Yes, that's, that's a very good point. That I think as a foundation to, for us to move into this uh, post-human future, I think we need to make sure that our material progress continues because exactly as, as you said, if we, if we uh, kind of uh, regress back into the subsistence mode, people are not going to have a long-term vision. And people are going to be fighting for survival all the time. And the human morality and spirit is going to be suppressed because you're, you're constantly in the survival mode. So going forward, as a communist, I have clearly seen that recently, you know, recent development, right? and whether you look at uh, anemic economic recovery since the Great Recession of 2008-2009, or you look at the rising income inequality, or you look at people's uh, uh, irresponsive behavior regarding to the natural environment and the uh, social sustainability, what you see is that increasingly we are running into some kind of a bottleneck 
in our global economic system. And the increasingly that bottleneck is actually the humanity itself. That we have been the most powerful, most important resources for growing economy and developing uh, human civilization. But going forward, I think increasingly we're realizing that our existing capabilities are not enough, and we need to do more. So one way to do more is actually trying to develop better human beings, uh, not only through education. We'll continue to to uh, promote on that ground, but once everyone can uh, take a college education in science technology, have already done so, then you say, what is the next step? The next step is really going to be developing better humans from the genetic level up. So we're going to combine culture and uh, nature and nurture in the future to power the economy ahead. And I see this as a virtuous cycle. When you have a more powerful economy, more people are going to be devoted to develop advanced technologies and more advanced technologies are going to enable for us to develop a better humanity. So this virtual cycle is going to, going to really break out the current stagnation of the global economy, particularly in the advanced countries. How do you propose to convince the people who have a more conservative or, you know, fundamentally religious outlook and who are always looking to the past, the good old days, the the, the real bedrock um, principles of, of religion? Yeah, um, I have addressed uh, this to various people, and uh, the feedback I got on, on two fronts. So the first, first front is that uh, is this uh, moving beyond humanity is going to bring us unprecedented risks? Right? So this is one concern. The, the second type of concern is concerning uh, morality, particularly from the uh, religiously conservative uh, people, saying that, uh, you know, are you going to be playing the role of God? You know, it's, it, it, you know we are... We are you know, we were created in the image of God. Are you offending God if you say that uh, you're going to be creating uh, even superior human beings than the human beings that are created by God? So let me address the first uh, issue very quickly. The first issue is that uh, uh, should we do this? The technology is going to be becoming extremely dangerous. And my answer is yes, we should do this from a philosophical and moral ground, but at a technical level, yes, we need to be paying all the attention. We need to monitor the development very carefully, and we should not, uh, never, never should not uh, under, underestimate the, 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 uh, something called the unintended consequences. Right? You, you can do something with good intention, but end up uh, in something really, really bad. For example, the eugenics movement uh, in the early 20th century. So we should make sure that uh, these unintended consequences being minimized. So that is addressing the risk uh, uh, concerns uh, from the technological front. From the moral front, uh, what I would like to suggest for those who think that uh, moving beyond existing humanity is going to be offending God or it's going to be uh, violating uh, so-called human dignity is that Throughout history, our understanding of God or Tao or Mother Nature, whatever you know, uh, whatever you will call it, 
this uh, supreme being that is a uh, uh, transcendental being. Throughout history, our understanding of this transcendental being has also evolved. And I believe that we should continue to evolve, uh, especially regarding the new technological feasibility and new reality. And I, and I can go into this, but overall, uh, I, I would like to say that uh, we should not be understanding the scripture on a literal basis, but on a uh, basis of uh, directional, to say what do they imply. And uh, our current understanding of te technological and cultural nature is quite different from 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years, years ago, whenever those scriptures are, were written. And uh, I actually, uh, through this book tour the last two weeks, I actually met with a lot of people who told me that this is the right thing to go, the right way to go, because if we continue to stuck to the old understanding, you know, based on just a little reading of the scripture, we would have gone nowhere. You know, the Industrial Revolution would not have happened. We will be still living in the primitive society, and I don't think uh, 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 not many people today wanted to return to those uh, to those worlds. I noticed in your book that you conflate these chauvinistic conservative forces with mysticism or spiritualism. Uh, why do you think there's an equivalency there? The equivalency between between the the spiritualistic, as you call it in the book, magicalistic um, worldview and yes. the fundamental religious worldview. Yes. Um, uh, last week, I also met uh, this wonderful philosopher. His name is Ken Wilber. Uh, I believe uh, some audience will be knowing this person. He has, uh, through the last 30 years, really developed a wonderful philosophical approach to understand the various religion, religious and spiritual traditions around the world, from the East to the West. And it's called integral theory. And under this framework, we need to understand that human consciousness really have several levels of meaning and several levels of understanding of the totality of nature, totality of human existence and the universe and even the transcendental reality. So in my in my book in chapter seven, I developed uh, something similar to to Ken Wilber's idea. I call this theory of perspective. So from a instinctual perspective, uh, uh, we look at the world from a more uh, what you said it's a magical level, and as we start to mature, our, our consciousness evolve. We start to think of the world in a more rational way. And then uh, one level further, you're trying to look at the world from a more spiritual and loving way. The, the, the way you look at the transcendental is to say the creation really loves the, all the elements that's going on inside of the creation process. And then go even further, uh, you reach the final viewpoint, which is the integrated process of the of the various levels of consciousness, and you see the limitations and 
advantages of each, and then you look at the world from a holistic view. From a holistic view, really the world is we're living in is really, really exciting, but it's also worth a lot of effort uh, in order to reach the potential of whether you call this individual, spiritual potential, or what I address in the book, the potential of our material and spiritual growth as an entirety, as a, as a species. Uh, once we reach that, then you look at the magical thinking, rational thinking, or spiritual thinking, or whatever you call the higher levels of thinking in a holistic way, and then all of a sudden, uh, as, as uh, a lot of uh, people have experienced, that all of a sudden you see the world in a very, very clear way, and the way is for evolution to continue to progress because this has been the greatest story that we have ever read or heard about, which is the story of evolution, which started uh, with the Big Bang uh, 13.7 billion years ago. You talk about the uh, humanity as being a means to um, a an end that is further down, embodied in what you call a cosmic being. How would you characterize this cosmic being? Very good question. Uh, uh, my my thinking about a cosmic being uh, started about uh, 15, 20 years ago when I was thinking about the long-term future because I was... Uh, I was working in the in the car industry, and people say, "Okay, well, you are the chief economist. Tell us about the long-term future of humanity." Uh, sorry, about the automobiles. And I told them, "Look, we have traditionally always thought that this is a car that has to be driven by someone." And I told them that over the long term, we should no longer look at the car as a car that's uh, the way it currently exists because. Fundamentally, a car company should not just build a better car. Our long-term vision should be provide the best personal mobility. Right? So, so from a car company's perspective, your ultimate goal is not a better car, but a car that provides personal mobility, regardless of whether human beings are driving it or the machine drives itself or it's controlled by the satellite or whichever way. And I would like to use this applied to the uh, view of humanity. So far, our human concerns have been staying at a human level. So whether you talk to uh, environmentalists, talking to economists, or even just talk to the brightest kid in the university, because I'm now a professor, I talk to them, to, to them and say, what is... What do you think is the most noble goal for humanity? And if you are free to make a significant contribution to humanity, humanity, what would you like to do? And the answer invariably comes back towards this goal of maximizing human happiness, maximizing human well-being. So, for example, uh, what I like to do is improve the educational system, helping poor kids, uh, helping uh, us to cure cancer and other disease, helping uh, stop climate change, helping us to making the environment more sustainable, and so on and so forth. And I think these goals, right, the goals to improve humanity are very worthy goals. And I will continue to 
recommend us to devote a lot of energies toward making human society a better society and making human happiness uh, a, a widespread uh, a phenomenon and reduce poverty, uh, illness, uh, uh, environmental degradation, and so on and so forth. But the book is not really about this. You know, this has been my work over the last 30 years. I, I was working on the climate change in the early 90s. The book is really about setting up a higher goal. So what is a higher goal? It is higher goal is to say that from the higher spiritual uh, level, when you look at the, not just look at the human history, but look at the entire cosmic history, I think human beings have this unique opportunity and unique capability to promote not just the better human uh, lives, but promote a better universe in a sense that we are the most uh, complicated beings in the world, in a known universe. We are the most moral being. We are the most technically capable being. We are actually standing on the frontier. And that frontier is not only civilizational frontier, this is a cosmic evolution frontier. So in that sense, that I think we should not call us human beings, but we should call us a cosmic being. Because if we look at, look at a human's place in the universe, we are really going to be on the frontier. We're going to be doing something that's truly unprecedented. Life and intelligence have now spread all over every corner of the Earth. I think the next step is for us to allow life, intelligence, and beauty into the entire cosmos, not just on the Earth. And I think to accomplish that, we need to move beyond humanity. And this is a higher goal than just human happiness. Not to say that human happiness is not a worthy goal, but I'm just trying to point out that there is a higher goal than human happiness, which is the cosmic being's goal, not just looking at a species, uh, human species ourselves. And you see this um, eventual cosmic being or, or um, varieties of cosmic beings um, as being some kind of, I guess what you would call a, a cyborg, a, a human-machine uh, hybrid? Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, 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 that is another point that uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's another point I'd like to uh, provide a little bit of clarification. Uh, I remember 10 years ago reading a book by uh, Freeman Dyson, uh, a wonderful physicist and really a, a, a far, far hour looking uh, uh, scientist. He said that uh, the question is not about whether we're going to be moving beyond humanity. The question is really about, do we need just one species or a million species or millions or millions of species uh, in the future? And his answer is the latter. I think he said that uh, the cosmos are large enough to provide the in environmental or ecological niche for millions or millions of different species. So I think this is the way to go. And also, in the spirit of evolution, 
we will never know the next being. We will never know what is the exactly the next goal we're trying to achieve. Just like in the early history of the uh, airplanes, a lot of designs were tried out. Some uh, movable wings, some wings with odd shapes. Before we settle on the current popular airplane shape that we all travel in, a lot of different shapes are tried. And I think in the future we're going to do the same thing. We're going we're gonna to try uh, at least three broad different approaches. So the first approach is that we're going to enhance or develop uh, based on the current human design, biological design. The second approach is uh, what I call ground-up, which is a lot of scientists are doing right now, so-called artificial general intelligence. Uh, this is to duplicate human intelligence and human capabilities from the ground up, from the uh, computer hardware uh, and uh, uh, building better codes and better system. And the third approach is uh, what you mentioned, uh, cyborgs, which can be a hybrid. Right? So, so, so we're going to take some parts from the current human genetic makeup, and then we're going to create some artificial uh, components that to replace some components of the current human beings, which we uh, uh, may think it's uh, 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 less desirable, and then combine this into the cyborg. Mm-hmm. And I have no idea how the future is going to play out. But I think overall, as long as we try many things and let them, uh, let them free and let them uh, to evolve and compete with each other, a better design or better uh, uh, higher beings is going to eventually emerge after uh, this period of evolutionary change. And that change is going to be very profound. Do you believe that we will actually be able to achieve a sentient robot? I think it's, uh, uh, we are still a long way off, um, but I don't think uh, creating a artificial sentient beings, a being with consciousness, are going to be violating any natural laws. So some people have proposed that uh, let's just reverse engineer the human brain. So that is one approach that some people, some scientists are trying. And another approach is really looking at a principle of the human brain and, and say, what is that principle, that essence, that we need to duplicate, but not the exact reverse engineering of the exact human structure. Just like understanding the mechanism of the flight enable us to create a human being, uh, sorry, create an airplane without a uh, flapping wings. That's the same idea. Uh, truthfully, I think a lot of scientists, uh, including the promoters of uh, transhumanism, I think they're overly optimistic. I think the technical obstacles are going to be greater than those engineers believe. And that is all for the reasons of we need to put more effort, not less effort, into into these adventures, because it's going to be very, very difficult. There's this big debate on... Um uh, among, for example, people who have uh, the, the right to lifers, when does human life begin? And the question of soul comes into it. What is your view of the human soul? Yeah, I think uh, we still have uh, we we still have a long way to go in terms of a scientific understanding of the soul. 
Some people believe that, actually not just some people, many people believe, especially in America, uh, less people in China and other parts of the world. But in America, a lot of people believe that uh, soul can have a non-material basis. And so the soul is something that comes into the human beings when the uh, MBO was conceived, and then after uh, the, the, the individual dies, the soul leaves the body. Uh, this, there's no, so far, there's no scientific evidence for this, but uh, a lot of people believe that. And I think to make it black and white, you know, in other words, to have a definitive answer, we will need to have the artificial being to have a consciousness and to have a soul-like uh, uh, performance to show that, uh, look, this thing can emerge right, without having a soul coming into it, and this thing can cease to exist without having we see something leaving it. And I think that will be the time where we say, okay, well, it is still not the final, final proof of the material basis of the soul, but at least we have shown that it is made possible that a non-material entity is not needed to create a sentient beings like human beings. I look forward to that, but I think we're still a long way off to create to create artificial consciousness, let alone... I think today we still don't understand the consciousness consciousness yet, let alone to create an artificial one. So again, uh, you're right, this is one area that uh, a lot of people have a different opinion, and I think uh, they have the right to their opinion as long as uh, there is no you know, final or definitive uh, scientific evidence for or against the idea of the soul. But overall, I don't think the idea of a soul is uh, going to be something that... Uh, that will prevent people to see the big picture. The big picture is really about the cosmic evolution starting from the Big Bang. And when we look at the past historical trend, we can get some very strong hints on where the next steps is going to be going. And uh, many people on my tour told me that, uh, you're right, uh, uh, technology is advancing at such a uh, fast pace that it seems like nobody can stop it. And my response is that uh, if we cannot stop it, we better understand it, right? And then we better have a position on whether we should contribute to it or we should uh, try our best to stop it or whether we take a hands-off approach and say, okay, that's other people's business. I don't care. <laughs> You talk about um, the alternatives to conscious evolution, which you describe as a hell-ven scenario. Can you expand on that? Yeah. Right now, the, the current transhumanist uh, literature is really having a lot of debate about how the future is going to turn out to be. And the the engineers, you know, and uh, utopian uh, theorists tend to look at a positive side, and they show us a future of super abundance in terms of material beings and super enjoyment of our individual lives. 
such as we're going to be able to stay healthy and young forever because we we have mastered uh, certain uh, genetic processes and so on. On the other side, people who are conservative are against the future argue that uh, no, uh, w- what the future is going to be is not going to be like a heaven like what you have described, the heaven on earth. But it's going to be like hell because uh, the supreme beings are going to be out of control because they're going to be smarter and more capable than human beings. So, and they're going to have their own mind. And we're going to face a really a hellish scenario of either they completely wipe us out or they enslave us or uh, they manipulate us against our will and so on and so forth. So the future is going to be hell, hell-like. So that's why I coined the word uh, Helvin. It's uh, H-E-L-L-V-E-N to describe the situation. It's not in the book, but it's, uh, I recently uh, tried to use this phrase to say why you need to read my book. Because if you don't read my book, then from the low-level perspective, right, from the perspective of what is going to happen to human beings, you're really going to be uh, going into a lot of confusion because nobody can convince either case where it's going to be the definitive uh, future. Because, uh, uh, look, there's going to be danger. And also, look, there's going to be a lot of benefit if uh, we continue to evolve ourselves beyond our current biological beings. So at a biological level, at a human level, there's going to be a lot of confusions going forward. And the book is really trying to go beyond this and say, don't look at humanity itself. Look at the overall evolutionary process. And don't think human beings are just another biological species that appeared randomly on Earth. Look at human beings as a species with a cosmic significance. And that cosmic significance is that we're in a position to create or launch the next phase of cosmic evolution. And when you look at it that way, then you understand, okay, well, in order to get into the next phase, just like in the past episodes of evolutionary history, there's going to be a lot of happiness, there's going to be a lot of casualties, there's going to be a lot of what I call Calvin scenarios playing out. And all these playing out is really going to be nothing new in the sense that this scenario has played out in the past many, many times before that enabled us to emerge. So Calvin scenario is not a scenario that's totally new, but we need to understand it in order to truly understand where we are going to do and what are the consequences of our actions going forward. I think Pandora's box will never be shut again. And um, your book does do a wonderful job of raising the different considerations that we really must uh, focus on and take into account as we move forward, because there is just no question of moving backward. So I, I really want to commend the book to, to readers to, um, who are interested in where humanity is going. And I want to thank you very much for the very considerable effort you went through to creating this book. Tell me, Ted, do you have a website for the book, or um, is there uh, yes, I, ongoing uh, dialogue about it? 
Yes, I do. Yes, I do. The website, the book site, and my publishers uh, has uh, Byron has helped me to set up is uh, com. So that's one word, transhumanpotential.com. And mm-hmm. uh, in it, uh, you can read the first two chapters of the book for free. Uh, so then you get a sense of the overall scope of the book and the overall aim of the book. Uh, and then uh, you can also read the comments and the book reviews that what other uh, experts uh, think of my book. And also uh, the last tab on that website is uh, is a blog that uh, I also use the framework uh, of my cosmic being analysis to look at some of the current issues like the financial crisis, the science fiction movies, the things that the, the audience, you, uh, are experiencing and, and looking at a touching point every day. And I try to link this to the overall uh, picture of where we are in the universe and what is our long-term uh, vision should be. So, again, well, it's uh, transhumanpotential.com. Ted Chu author of Human Purpose and Transhuman Potential. Thank you so much for being with us today, Ted. Well, thank you very much, uh, Marianne, for giving me the opportunity to share share uh, with your audience uh, some of my thoughts. Uh, I really appreciate that. Goodbye. Next week, we have a special group of guests. They are the top reviewers from New Consciousness Review, and we're going to be having a reviewers' roundtable to talk about some of the most exciting books and films that they've reviewed in recent times, and also the trends that we're seeing among the new titles coming up. You'll find all of these titles, as well as all of the books and films that we discuss on NCR Radio and the interviews, on ncreview.com. Do pay us a visit and have fun browsing around, and you might mention it to your friends. And now we're going to close with our track of the week called Dare to Be by Jana Stanfield. Road. Always learning as I go But you can't look backward and get ahead It's time to lead and not be led Goodbye limitation, hello liberation Goodbye frustration, hello to living my life by my design Breaking these chains that bind my mind Learning to color outside the line
Goodbye frustration. Hello, don't live my life by my design. Breaking these chains that bind my mind. Learning to color outside the lines. Dare, dare to be, dare to be, dare. Dare to be, dare to be, dare. Dare to be, dare to be. One of a kind. Goodbye limitation. Hello liberation. Goodbye frustration. Hello, don't live in my life by my design. Breaking these chains that bind my mind. Learning to color outside. That was Dare to Be by Jana Stanfield. Jana is known as the queen of heavy mental, and she describes her music as psychotherapy you can dance to. With soaring vocals, acoustic arrangements, and meaningful lyrics, Jana says that her goal is to use her music to give people a faith lift. Her fans say the music is the ideal alternative to Prozac, all the mood elevation with none of the watery tension. Now, Jan is just one of the Positive Music Association's growing group of musicians who are using music not only to entertain, but to make a positive difference in people's lives and in the world. PMA members have music styles ranging from pop and rock to folk and jazz, all with positive messages designed to uplift, heal, or enlighten. To find out more about Jana's music, go to janastanfield.com. And to discover more great music or to join the PMA, go to positivemusicassociation.com. Many of the speakers and performers that you hear here on NCR Radio are members of our Speakers Bureau, Luminary Voices, at luminaryvoices.com. So if you are planning an event... Go to luminaryvoices.com. Well, that's our show for today. I really hope you'll join us next week. Until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.